Welcome again to the Science of the Covenant podcast. And as you know, we are the podcast where we will study the scripture in the Bible. But before we get started, we want to say hallelujah to our king because all praises should be to him because we have maybe went through some things during the week that we normally haven't. But we say hallelujah for him getting us through those things. So we always get to give praises. So if you can say it with me. Hallelujah to our King. Hallelujah. Hallelujah to our King. I'm Boyce Washington, and on the other side of me is Pastor Richard Washington, and we say Shabbat Shalom to the Hebrew Mishpachah scattered to the four corners, and we say Shabbat Shalom to all the other believing nations of our loving Elohim. Welcome to the Science of the Covenant podcast, and as you know, if you've been listening to us, or if this is your first time, this is a podcast where we will study the Bible, the biblical covenant, and what that means for us today. So, my question, as you always know, I always ask you, do you have your Bibles ready? So, if you don't have your Bibles ready, put this podcast on pause, go grab your Bible, grab your pen and the pad, your tablet, your computer, your notebook, your phone, whatever you need to do to access the Bible and to take notes. We need you to do that and then come back and listen to us. All right, so I'm about to turn it over. Pastor, what do you have for us today? All right, thank you very much. Uh, what we want to do is continue uh, studying about the covenant and how it's a marriage covenant between Elohim and his people. Now, thus far, we have studied how Elohim was a part of the marriage of Adam and Eve who are the progenitors of the human race. And now we want to take some of the same imagery that we saw in his relationship with Adam and Eve and see how that relates to how Elohim is associated with his people today. So before we get into it, we want to ask his blessing, Eternal Father, that as we continue to study the covenant promise and the marriage that you have with you and your children, that we may better understand the covenant relationship that you have. So as we read in your word, we ask that you bless your word, that it may restore unto us the image that you would have us to have, that we may be the true bride of Yeshua, the Messiah, and through the Father, O Heavenly Father, who is over the universal church, that we may be your children, doing and saying and walking in the way that you have laid out. These blessings we ask in the name of Yeshua, the Messiah, and for his dear sake we do pray, amen and amen. Now, we want to read in Jeremiah chapter 3, and we're looking at verse 14 in the first part. It says, Turn, O backsliding children, said <clears throat> Yehoah, for I am married unto you. So in the first part of the 14th verse of the third chapter of Jeremiah, here, Elohim is saying, I'm, I'm married to you. You're backsliding from me, but I am married to you. So thus far, we have looked at a human marriage from a number of angles. Now, what we want to do in this study is to incorporate this human understanding of a marital relationship into that of a divine understanding of a marital relationship as it relates to his covenant with his people. As we have seen in our previous studies, marriage is between a man 
and a woman as we engage in Elohim's covenant between him and his people, we want to keep this male and female relationship in, in mind. Moreover, in our studies, we concern ourselves with two marriages, respectively. First, we dealt with the initial marriage he had with his first couple he created, and then we'll concern ourselves with the second marriage, which involves the redemption of his people back to himself. Therefore, the first divine marriage we want to engage in is the Elohimic betrothal, the Elohimic betrothal. Now, when we look at the Elohim, Elohimic betrothal, we are talking about uh, the Elohim who has created his people. Now, well, I want you to turn with me in Genesis chapter uh, 1, and we want to look at a couple of verses there, Genesis chapter 1. We want to look at at least uh, two verses there, and then we want to look at Genesis chapter 2. So here in Genesis chapter 1, we want to look at... Uh, Let's see here, chapters 1 and 2. And so here in chapter 1, we'll look at verses 26 and 27, which reads thusly. In verse 26 of the first chapter of Genesis, it says, And Elohim said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And verse 27 says, So Elohim created man in his own image, in the image of Elohim created he him, male and female created he them. So we are looking at what we've titled the Elohimic betrothal. Now generally, when two persons get married, and have a ceremony for the bride, groom, and the bride, they commit to a set of vows, one uh, with one another. Included in these vows are the words, what Elohim has joined together, let no man put asunder. And that's found in Matthew 19.6. Now, what we want to read in, in, in Genesis chapter 2, and in Genesis chapter 2, we want to look at verse 7. Okay. Now, we've already seen that he want to make male and female in his image. Now, we want to look at Genesis 2, 2 7, it says, And Jehovah Elohim formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So now in this passage, it's telling us the process in which he made man. And as we look at the fact when he made man, then he also later on made the woman. And so Yeshua says in Matthew 19.6, 19, what Elohim has joined together, let no man put asunder. 
And these are the words which Yeshua pronounced upon those getting married. Taking these words into consideration, they raise at least two basic questions. And we want to look at these two basic questions that are raised uh, that Yeshua uh, is here presenting to us. And as we consider those questions, they will be pertinent in understanding the covenant relationship that Elohim has uh, with, with his people. Okay. Now, the first question we would entertain would be, if Elohim created marriage, would not he be a part of that which he created? That's the first question. So what are we asking? If he created marriage, should not he be a part of it? Okay. Now, the second question we would entertain would be, if he is a part of marriage, then what part of it is he a part of? So we say Elohim is a part of marriage. So what, what, part, what, what part is he a, he, he, he a part of? So we want to deal with those two questions. So with this in mind, let us proceed to give some polemics for our first question. If he created marriage, wouldn't he be a part of that which he created? What we notice in scripture is that once he created and joined Adam and Eve in wedlock, there were at least two basic ways he was a part of their marital relationship. First, it was by being the marriage maker, and second, by being the marriage owner. He made it and he owned it. Marriage is something Elohim made and owns, so that makes him a part of it. By the mere fact that Elohim made marriage means that he is the author. Let us look at what it means to be an author. Now, generally, we associate an author to a person who writes a book or articles of some sort. We call them authors because they are considered to have an authority over the subject they are writing about. Those who have authority over that which they write are called authors. The word author is mentioned by the Apostle Paul in Scripture at least twice. However, for the first two times they are mentioned, each word comes from a different Greek word, which basically have similar meanings. We find these words, or these two words for author, respectively, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, uh, chapter 5 and verse 9, and also Hebrews, chapter 12 and verse 2. Now, when we look at uh, Hebrews, chapter 5 and verse 9, we have the word for author that comes from Atos, Atos, now that's spelled A-I-T-O-S, that's the Greek word for author, and the word is Atos, and it means to cause or an occasion, okay, that's what an author is, he calls and an occasion. Now the second word for author is Archigos, Archigos, 
And archigos, the word arch means a beginning. And when we had the word archigos, we talk about a, a beginner. And it also means the chief leader, okay? So when we have the author of something, we have a person that brings something or causes something to come into existence. He creates the occasion. And when we look at the other word, archigos, it has a meaning of a beginner or the chief leader. So when we deal with marriage, we are dealing with the one who caused it and gave the occasion, and he is the beginner of it. He is the chief leader. When we apply these words to the marital relationship, it would mean that Elohim caused it to come into being. He is the one who brought about the betrothal. As we can also see from the word archigos, which is spelled A-R-C-H-E-G-O-S, A-R-C-H-E-G-O-S, it means the beginner or the chief leader. When we associate these meanings to marriage, we have the following. Elohim is the beginner of wedlock, and he is the chief leader over it. Consequently, if he was the causal agent bringing about the causal factor to produce marriage, this makes him both the originator and the chief leader of marriage, thus being a part of the betrothal. Now, the next question we want to consider is how is he a part of the betrothal? We want to consider this question from at least two aspects. The first aspect is their marriage vows of which we will refer to as the marital covenant. So when we look at the marital covenant, we are looking at the vows in the covenant that bounds he and his people together. Now, according to the marital covenant, Adam, the husband, and Eve, his wife, were to be one flesh and bones because they were a part of one another. However, Elohim's covenant with man is found in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. So let's look at the covenant that Elohim had with the people in whom he made. And let's look at that covenant. Okay, here in Genesis 2, we're looking at the covenant that he made with, with Adam and Eve. In verse 16 of the second chapter of Genesis says, And Yehoah Elohim commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. So that was a covenant. There was a covenant right there that he made. He said if they obey, they would live. If they disobey, they would die. If they partook of the tree that they should not partake of, there was a covenant. It was a statement, but it was a covenant to them. So the longevity of their life and the longevity of their marriage with Elohim all depended upon their obedience. Disobedience would break that covenant. So here Adam is told that if he ate of the forbidden, 
tree, he would die. As long as he abided by the words of this covenant, he would possess life. This covenant was not only included marriage vows between Yah and Adam, but it was also points out to us how he was a part of Adam and Eve's marital relationship by making this covenant with Adam and Eve if they didn't partake of the forbidden, they would have a lifetime contract of an eternal marriage relationship. This everlasting marriage depended upon the life-giving breath of Elohim, of which he breathed into Adam when he created him in Genesis 2-7. As long as that breath of life they had in them, they obeyed the covenant, that breath of life would sustain them forever. In order to have a marriage to exist forever, the breath of life breathed into Adam must be in compliance with obeying what was articulated in the covenant. If the covenant was obeyed, it would last eternally. But if disobeyed, it would be only temporarily. Let us now look at what we refer to as the spiritual marriage of which we call the pneumonogamy. Pneumonogamy. Now, pneumonogamy means, pneumos means spirit, and monogamy means to have only one spouse at a time. Okay? So when we look at the new monogamy, we are talking about one spirit, and that is the one spirit that comes from Elohim, okay? So when we look at the new monogamy, we see this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Notice what it says. It says, and Yehoah Elohim formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Okay, so when we see he breathed into his nostrils, breath like that was one breath. It did not come from many spirits, it came from only one spirit, and that was Elohim's spirit. So when we talk about the pneumonogamy, which is spelled P-N-E-U-M-O-N-O-G-A-M-Y. P-N-E-U-M-O. N-O-G-A-M-Y. Pneumonogamy deals with the spirit of Yah, of which he has one spirit which comes from him. And we read again in Genesis 1.26, and we look, look at part B of Genesis 1.26, where it says, and the spirit of Elohim moved from the face of the waters. So again, we see it said the, the spirit of Elohim. So he only has one spirit, one spirit. And that spirit was breathed into Adam. So when Yahuwah breathed his breath into Adam, a marriage bond was instituted. Therefore, when Adam was given a wife who was made from one of his ribs, which Elohim extracted from him, when Adam laid eyes upon her after awakening out of sleep, he said, this is 
bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Okay, so when we look in Genesis 2, 22, here Adam is recognizing that the person in whom Elohim has made for him has also come from him. So when we look at Genesis 2.22, it says, and the rib which Yahuwah Elohim had taken from man, he made a woman and brought her unto the man. And then verse 23, it says, and Adam said, this is now bones of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Okay. Isn't it somewhat questionable that he didn't say in conjunction with being bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh that he also didn't say she is spirit of his spirit? Why did he limit his remarks to being bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh and not to say spirit of my spirit. Possibly there are at least two basic reasons we could explore. So we want to explore these particular reasons why Adam says bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, but he didn't say spirit of my spirit. It must be some reason why he didn't say that. Now, the first basic polemic we can give for him not saying to Eve, she is spirit of my spirit, is that he himself was made from the soil of the earth. This he could claim because they were both of the same substance, the same source. One can only claim what is one's own. In other words, what Adam was made from was the soil of the earth, and that's what his bones and his flesh was made out of. So when Eve came forth from him, that's what he was, and he can claim that what he was is also is what she was, and so therefore he says, since I am bone and flesh made from the earth, she is also bone and flesh made from the earth, so she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It was Elohim who gave Adam and Eve their material source of which they were to be stewards of. However, when it comes to Elohim's spirit, neither Adam or his wife could claim it as a source from, from which came they themselves. Okay, so this brings us to the second basic polemic. We can give for why Adam could not say she was spirit of my spirit. Because his spirit wasn't his, but Elohim's. He couldn't claim what wasn't his. His spirit came from the breath breathed into him by his creator. And for him to say she is spirit of my spirit, would be for him to say falsely or to lay a false claim to something that didn't come from him, 
but from his maker. Yeshua said to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And when he was telling Nicodemus that by night, he was making known that there's a distinction between the flesh and the spirit. And that's John 3, 6. Now, no man has monopoly over the spirit of Elohim. Only Yah, he himself, is responsible for his spirit. Consequently, if we were associate Elohim together with the marriage of Adam and Eve, it would be through his spirit. Now, what we want to consider is the marital mergers. Now, you remember when we did the mergers, the marital mergers for Adam, we was looking at it from the position of how Elohim had merged their marriage together. And we want to see some of the same things of how he merged the marriage between he and his people together. We want to look at that. So we call this the, mar the marital mergers. In dealing with the marital mergers of Adam and Eve, it has to do with how Elohim matched them up in marriage. And we dealt with these mergers from four aspects. Now, what we want to do in these mergers with Yah is to approach them from his spirit in order to see how he is a part of the marriage covenant of his people. The first merger we'll undertake is the marital matter, the marital matter. When we consider Elohim's contribution to both the human race and Adam and Eve, they were both given his spirit. Just as Adam and Eve shared their material substance with one another, even so, they both shared the excellent spirit of Yehoah. What Adam said of Eve when he first saw her, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, Yah could also say to Adam and, and Eve, and even to his people, when he first saw us, they are spirit of my spirit and breath of my breath. Consequently, thus far, what we can discern is that the marital matter of which Elohim himself contributed to Adam's and Eve's marriage is his spirit. Even so, in being married to his people, his, who are his church or his assembly, it is, it is his spirit that binds us to him. With Elohim and his assembly, it is a spiritual matter. Everything he does and performs for his people, it must be with his spirit. The next marital merger we would want to engage in is that of the mingling, of which we will refer to as the marital mingling. So the marital mingling, where uh, Elohim also can be found in the marriage relationship, 
between Adam and Eve and also his people. In the marital mingling, it is the coming together of the breath of Yah and the flesh of man of which we beget both our spiritual and carnal natures. It is these two natures which makes up the soul of a person. When Elohim imputed his breath into the nostrils of the fleshly substance of the man, it was only then that he possessed the spiritual life forces to move about and to think and to reason. In coming together of physical substance of man and the spiritual breath of Yah, it created a dual creature within man composed of soul, it's composed of soil and spirit, which we refer to as the physiolumos nature. In other words, the physical and the spiritual nature. When the physical was fused with the spiritual, we beget the algamation of man with his maker. So when the spirit and the flesh came together, they were united by their maker. Elohim's intention was that after he had aligned the spiritual with the physical, that the material substance would be ruled by the spiritual substance. However, when Yah's covenant was broken by man, then the physical nature of man began to war with his spiritual nature. And Paul speaks about it in this manner. I want you to turn with me to see how Paul deals with these two particular natures. And we want to turn to Romans, in the book of Romans. And we want to uh, look in the book of Romans, and we want to look at the seventh chapter of Romans, in Romans chapter 7. And we want to use a few verses there. We want to start with verse 14 in Romans. Now notice what he says in the book of Romans. He says in verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under, this, uh, under sin. So here Paul is saying, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Okay, so to be spiritual means that you're dealing with his spirit, and to be carnal, you're dealing with the flesh. So Paul says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, so under sin. And then we go on down in the same seventh chapter of Romans, and we want to look at verse 23 and following. Now, and, uh, well, actually verse 21 to 23. And verse 21 says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of Elohim after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of the man and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is my members. 
So Paul is saying here, when Adam and Eve sinned, it brought in a sinful law. And now the sinful law is at war with the spiritual. And so when we see the spiritual law and the carnal law, they're warring in our members. So when Adam and Eve broke the covenant by eating of the forbidden, then another spirit came into them along with the spirit of Elohim. When man alienated himself from Elohim's spirit by violating the stipulations of the covenant, he amalgamated with the spirit of the serpent. This spirit of the serpent came from the spirit of the adversary, the devil, and Satan. And when we read in Revelations 12, 9, he calls him a number of names, and one of those names was the adversary, the devil, and Satan. Once this amalgamation of this satanic spirit entered into his being, we have our first cause, our first case of spiritual adultery. So when the spirit of Satan intermingled with the spirit of Elohim within Adam and Eve, we have the first case of spiritual adultery. Now that man has entertained another spirit other than his creators, he has become like his creator in a sense to know good and evil. So let us turn back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And we want to look at the 22nd verse, Genesis 3, 20, 20, 22. <clears throat> and here it says in Genesis 3, and looking at verse number 22. Okay, here Moses writes, he says, and Yehoah Elohim said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil, unless he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So Elohim said, man, after eating that fruit, he is like Elohim to know good and evil. And Elohim said he had to stop him because if he didn't stop man, from eating the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that in that state he would live forever. So Elohim's knowledge of good and evil made them like Elohim. And if you remember, Elo, uh, the Satan had told uh, the, the couple that if they would eat up the fruit, they would be like Elohim. So we need to understand what is going on here. Does this mean that when he gave them the covenant, they didn't know what good and evil was, and Satan is saying that the reason why he don't want you to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil because you be like him? Well, there's a difference between having a knowledge of something and experiencing something. See, Elohim's knowledge of good and evil is because he knows all things. However, Adam and Eve's knowledge of good and evil goes beyond just knowing what is good and evil, or to knowing it intellectually by understanding it, but rather 
and internal mingling of being affected with evil. You see, they not only know, knew it, but they became affected by it. See, I can know something, but I don't have to be involved in it. I can know that it's wrong to put heroin, heroin or marijuana or alcohol in my body. I can know that. But if I have to know it by actually experiencing it, taking it into my system, I'm not going to only know it, but I'm going to be affected by it. So when it says that Elohim says they are now like me, yes, they, they now knew good and evil, but the fact they would have known it anyway if they had not partaken of the fruit, but by partaking of it, they not only had a knowledge of it in their minds, but it affected their entire being. So the difference being is that they were like Elohim and knowing good and evil, but the difference is that Elohim had no sin, but they had to get to know it by getting involved in it. So when we know something that we are not involved in it, we have an intellectual knowledge, but if we know it by actually experiencing it, taken into our bodies, then we know it by our minds, but we also know it by our personal involvement in it. So that was the difference of them being like Elohim, is that they actually partook of it rather than studying it and to knowing about it. So to know evil is one thing, but to be affected by it is another. Moreover, what makes this an adulterous affair is that more than one seed has entered into the marital relationship of Adam and Eve. As you remember, when we studied, we were showing how if a man had one wife, two wives, or 12 wives or more, if there was only one seed, then it was not adultery. But when you have two seeds, when a woman has two seeds, then it becomes adultery because you got two seeds. We understand that the seed is that which Elohim put within plants, animals, and man in order to reproduce after their kind. So now let us turn, let us turn to uh, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1. Here in Genesis chapter 1, and we're looking at verse 11. Notice what verse 11 says. Verse 11 of chapter 1 of Genesis says, And Elohim said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed was in itself upon the earth, and it was so. So in other words, when he put that seed in that plant, he said the purpose of that seed was to reproduce after its kind. And then when we read further in verse 12, it says, And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind, and, it, and Elohim saw that it was good. So it's reiterating the fact that the seed in the plant is to reproduce after its kind. That's what, that's what it was for. And then when we go to verse 21 of the same uh, chapter of Genesis 1, it said, And Elohim created great wells, and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind, and Elohim saw that it was good. So when you look at the, the fish and the fowl, Elohim says he had a seed within them to reproduce after their kind. 
And then when we go to verses 24 of the same chapter, and here it says, And Elohim said, Let the earth bring forth a living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after his kind. And so, and it was so. So we see that all of the land Roman beasts, they had seed within themselves to reproduce after their kind. Okay, so if that was true of the plant and the beast world, let us also look at man. Here in the 24th verse, of, of <clears throat> not in 24th, but in verse 20, 20, 20, uh, 26, it says, and Elohim said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So Elohim created man in his own image, and the image of Elohim created he, him, male and female created he them. So the point that we are emphasizing from these particular passages of scriptures when it takes the plants and the animals and mankind, they all had a seed within them to reproduce after their kind. Now, what we want to look at, we want to turn to the book of Luke. We want to turn to the book of Luke and uh, the eighth chapter, Luke chapter eight. And we want to find out what, what is the seed? What, what, what is the seed? Okay. Now, here in the eighth chapter, and here we read in the eighth chapter of Luke, and here we find that in this eighth chapter, that uh, he speaks about a parable of the sower, okay? And the parable of the sower is from verses 4 to around about 15. If you look at uh, verses 4 to 15, that's the parable of the sower. However, what we want to do is, is zero in on this parable because it says, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And we know that when the sower sowed, what did he sow? He sowed seed. So now we want to find out what, what is the seed? What is the seed? So here, Dr. Luke says in the eighth chapter, verse 11, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of Elohim. Oh, that is. The seed according to the parable of the sower found in, in Luke 8, 11, is the word of Elohim. Therefore, if the word of Yah is a seed, put in the soil of the human heart, it is that which helps us to be able to come forth in his image and likeness. As Genesis 1.26 says, everything uh, that he created man in his image. So in order to come back to Elohim's image, we need to see in us, and his seed is his word, and when we get his word, his word will reproduce his character in us. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, we want to turn to that parable as well in conjunction with, with, with the uh, parable uh, of the, of the sower. And we want to look at something. So when we look at Matthew, and we want to turn to Matthew chapter 13. And in Matthew chapter 13, 
we want to start with verse 24, Matthew 13, 24. Now, here it says in Matthew 13, 24, it said, Another parable he put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which soweth good seed in his field. And while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. So this is the parable of the wheat and the tares, okay? Now, what we notice, what we have uh, here is that there are two types of seed, two types, okay? Now, the two types of seed that we have, we have this, that of the wheat, and we have that of the tares, okay? So when we read this parable, it's talking about the wheat and the tares. Now, we want to look at uh, Matthew 13, and we want to read uh, a few passages from 24 to about 30, okay? Now, we read, we read the first uh, verses 24 and 25, but verse 26 says, but when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the household came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field, from whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy has done this. The servant said unto him, Will thou then that we go and gather up the tares? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Verse 30 says, Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles, and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, so here's what we're looking at. We're looking at the tares and the, and the wheat, the wheat seed and the tares seed. So what we have is two types of seed, Elohim seed and the devil seed. Okay, now let's, in the same chapter 13, let us get an interpretation of the seeds here. And we do so by reading verse 37. And he answered and said unto them, He that sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. So we know that the good seeds come from Yeshua, the Son of Man. Okay, that's the good seed. All right. Then in verse 39, notice what it says. He said, The enemy that sowed them, talking about the tares, is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. So what he's pointing out is that the devil is the one that sowed the tares. The Son of Man sowed the good seed, so the evil seed is being sown by the enemy, which is the devil. So what we have is two types of seed, Elohim seed and the devil seed. Let us examine these two types of seed. However, let us first start with Yah's seed, of which we refer to as the seed of Elohim. So let us look at the seed of Elohim. Now, in considering the seed of Elohim, we want to see how it aligns itself with his spirit in conjunction to the seed and the spirit of which we'll refer to as 
the sperma lumos. Yeshua spoke about it in John's gospel. When we talk about the sperma lumos, sperma means seed and lumos means spirit. So what we are talking about is the seed of the spirit, the seed of the spirit. Now what we want to do is turn to the book or the gospel uh, of John, the Besorah of John, Yohanan, John. Now here in John, we want to look at chapter, we want to look at chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. Okay, in chapter 6 of John, we want to look at verse number 63. Okay, well, turn there with me in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, chapter 6 and verse 63. Now, what we want to notice, notice is how it reads. It said, It is the Spirit that quickens the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Now, here in this verse, it points out at least three pertinent things. Let us examine them. So we want to look at three pertinent things in this 63, 63rd verse of John, the sixth chapter. We want to look at three pertinent things. Now, the first thing that we want to look at, we have the spirit that quickeneth. Now, when they talk about the spirit that quickeneth, the word quickeneth comes from the Greek word zooponeo, zooponeo, which is spelled Z-O-O-P-O-I-E-O, zooponeo, zooponeo. And it means to give or preserve life. In other words, when something is quickened, it is given life or it preserves life. So when it talks about the spirit that quickens, it is talking about the pneumoponeo, or we call it the zo. And the pneumozo is the spirit of life. So we have the spirit of life in this verse 63 of the sixth chapter. That's what we have. We have the spirit of life. Okay. So that's the first thing we see in this verse. Now, the second thing we want to look at in this text is the words that speak unto you, they are spirit. Now notice what he says. He said, the words I speak unto you, they are spirit. So Yeshua is saying, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit. When we consider that the words Yeshua speaks are spirit, we have what we call the logos, lumos, being the word of the spirit. Consequently, when the words of Yeshua or the words of the Father comes to us, they are a, of a spiritual nature. So Yahuwah or Yahushua is saying that the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit. And this is where we get logos, pneumos. The word logos in Greek means word, and pneumos means spirit. So when we have the logos, pneumos, 
we are having the word of the spirit. So when we got the word, we got the spirit, and we got the spirit, we got the word. But there is in the same 63rd chapter, or uh, 63rd verse of the sixth chapter, it says uh, the third thing that we want to see, and notice what it says. It said, it says, uh, and they are life. In other words, it's talking about the word. It says, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and not only are they spirit, but they are life. They are life. So here we have the Lagos Zoe, which is the word of life. Now, as we observe these three scenarios, we have come up with the following. Here's what we have come up with. We have the Numo Zoe, which is the spirit of life. We have the Lagos Numos, which is the word of the spirit. And then we have the Lagos Zoe, which is the word of life. So can you see the picture in the 63rd verse? You have the spirit of life, the word of the spirit, and you have the word of life. Already we can see how these words are associated. So let us examine these associations which, of which we will refer to as the connections. The first connection that we're looking at is there is a Numos zone which is connected to the Lagos Numos. In this connection, we have the spirit of life connected to the word of the spirit. Thus, we have three components in this particular uh, 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 scenario, which are we have the spirit, the life, and the word. You notice that. We have the spirit, the life, and the word. Okay. Now, second, we have the Lagos Lumos and the Lagos Zoa and the Lagos Zoe connected, which is the word of the spirit and the word of life connected. In this connection, we have three components. We have the word, the spirit, and the life. And thirdly, we, can, we connect Lagos Zoe with the Numos Zoe, which is the word of life and the spirit of life. In this connection, we have three components, which are the word, the life, and the spirit. Now, let us look at all three of them together. When we look at all three, we have the spirit, the life, and the word. And then we have the word, the spirit, and the life. And then we have the word, the life, and the spirit. Now, let us turn back to Genesis 1, Genesis chapter 1. And we want to look at Genesis chapter 1, and we want to look at 2b. In other words, we want to look at chapter, chapter 1, and we want to look at the latter part, which is B of 2, chapter 1, verse 2, but we want to look at part B of verse 2, which says, And the Spirit of Elohim moved upon the face of the waters. And then in verse 3 it says, And Elohim said, Let there be light, and there was light. 
Now, what we want you to see is that all of the scenarios that we showed was we showed the spirit, the life, and the word. And we showed the word, the spirit, and the life. And then we showed the word, the life, and the spirit, all the same thing. Now we can see, now we can consider the creation that when Elohim's spirit was active in creation, then he speaks his word and his word brings life. So cannot we say that Yah's spirit is his word and his word is life? So therefore, when we consider the seed, the seed has to do with his word and his word is brought by the spirit. And when his word is brought by the spirit, it gives life. So we looked at Elohim's seed, how it brings life. And we're going to stop at this particular juxtaposition. And next week, we're going to be dealing with the, the seed of the serpent. We're going to deal with his seed, but we have dealt with Elohim's seed to let you see that these two seeds that are in man, they're going to be warring together, but the seed of Elohim was first placed in man, and then when they broke the covenant, then the seed of Satan was put in them, and we'll deal with that seed next week, so we'll close at this just a position. Okay, so you were saying that so partaking of the tree was part of the marital covenant between Yahuwah and Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. Now, was this the only other only covenant that was uh, part of the marital covenant between Adam and Yah? Or did everything revolve around them not disobeying and not partaking of the tree? Okay, let me put your question in perspective. So what you're asking is, was this the only covenant given to Adam and Eve? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Oh, yeah. That was the only covenant. That was the only covenant. Okay, now, based upon that, uh, that covenant would be the basic of every covenant throughout the Bible. Mm-hmm. Every covenant that he has given to his people throughout the Bible, that would be the basis of, of, of that covenant. I don't think you can read a covenant in the Bible that it does not embrace what he gave to Adam and Eve. He mm. did not give anything different, even though mm. the words are different. So the, the other parts of the covenant that come later on basically built upon, uh, well, 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 no, maybe I should ask this. Was the covenant null and void once Adam and Eve partook of the tree and therefore another covenant have to come into place? Uh Yes, another covenant had to come in place, uh, but what we're dealing with is the fact that when when they broke the covenant, now this this is what, what is quite interesting, mm-hmm. uh, is that when you read the covenant, uh, that when they broke it, that within the covenant itself, mm-hmm. uh, Elohim had made provisions that if they broke it, he put it in the covenant itself. So, mm. so it, it was not like when they broke the covenant that that was all a part of it. That was, that was a part that he was telling them that if they do, then they can have an eternal relationship. Mm. But 
after they had broke broken the covenant, he 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 had another part of the covenant that he would share with them. Now we can look at a part of it. Let me see. Um, let me see here. Let us look at Genesis uh, chapter three. And and verses, let me see, verse, let's look at 15 and uh, 16. Okay. Okay, now, here's what I'm saying is, yeah, they broke the covenant, but, yeah. uh, but within the covenant relationship that he had made, uh, and uh, some of you may remember that we talked about the everlasting covenant, the covenant that he had made before the foundation of the world. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's in book of Revelation uh, 13, 8. But when he made that covenant before the foundation of the world, he had already made a covenant that if man should sin, mm-hmm. that he had a way for them to come back to him. Mm-hmm. See, that he loved us so much that he didn't put it to a chance that he waited till we sin, and then he had a provision or a covenant for it. He, he had made that even before he created Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. See, he, he was... He was, he was he was uh, light years ahead of Satan, what Satan was doing. But mm-hmm. here's what I want you to see in verse 15 and 16. It said, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Okay. And that's what we're talking about, the seed. Okay. All right. Now, Satan has a seed and Elohim has a seed. And it says, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And most Bible scholars would say when it talks about bruising the head and the heels, this was at the crucifixion of Yeshua, that when they bruise his feet and bruise his heel, which means that when the person's head is bruised, that's the most damage. And when the heel is bruised, that's a lesser amount of damage. So in other words, when they kill or put him to Christ to death on the cross, then he atoned for our sins, which gave us a right now to get back in covenant relationship with the father. Because Yeshua had paid for those sins. Then he says in verse 16 of Genesis 3:16, unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Okay. So when we look at uh, uh, that, he is saying that Eve ate first and she gave to Adam and he said, but now he has put her in a place to say, okay. Your husband shall rule over thee. Now, this rulership, if you look at the word rule here, it does not mean a dominant rule. It's a loving rule that he would have over his wife mm-hmm. and that they would follow in the covenant relationship that he has given. And so from Adam and Eve, they would have children. And through the land of Adam, throughout uh, his generation and to other generations, the Messiah would come. And he would be able to atone for all of the sins of the people that have sinned, who have accepted him as the Messiah. So therefore, in the covenant relationship that he had given to Adam and Eve was also the provisions that if they broke the covenant, they would have access to be able to come back to Elohim. And that would be because Elohim would be bruised lightly by Satan, but he in turn would bruise the head of, of the serpent, which means that he would put the devil down, and that when Eve 
would have children and her children's 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 children would have children. Eventually the Messiah would come and he would put an end to Satan's kingdom. So yes, he gave one covenant, but within that covenant was also the provisions to come back to himself. Can you expound upon a little bit? Uh, you said it was a dominant, it's not to be a dominant rule, but a loving mm -hmm. rule. But, um, cause I know when you say someone rules over you, it kind of, someone is domineering and the other one is subservient. Yeah. Uh, well, when I was looking at that text, it was, uh, basically, uh, two Hebrew words mm -hmm. that was, uh, spoken of. I don't have them read on. Uh, I don't have them read, 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 read before me, but one of them, it was a type of rule that, uh, you, you, you couldn't, in so many words, you couldn't question it. Mm -hmm. That that's, a, that's the way it had to be. Okay. But the type of rule that, uh, that Adam would have over his wife was sort of like a, a, a shared rulership, like a king and a queen. Okay. okay. Or maybe a president and his wife uh -huh. and that he would hold to Elohim's will, but at, at the same time of holding to his will, uh, that would be the type of um, communication that both of them would be able to see that doing it this way would be the best good for both of them. Because oftentimes when we have a dictatorial rule, it means that you don't have anything to say. Mm -hmm. You have to be in compliance. And when they say jump to attention, you have to do that. But in this type of rule, he wanted Adam to rule in the fear and the admonition of Yehoah with a loving kindness, just like Elohim himself, just like when Adam sinned, he didn't arbitrarily just blot him out. Mm -hmm. He gave him love and kindness, and this is what he intended for Adam to do to his wife Eve, to rule with the loving kindness. Okay. One last question uh, before we go on. Did, because uh, I don't recall reading it, but did Elohim breathe into Eve to well, give her the life? Bi the Bible doesn't say. It just said he took out the rib mm -hmm. and he made the woman. Okay, now... We can only assume, we can only assume that if he made the woman, that he put the same spirit in her mm -hmm. that he put in Adam and Eve, because, you know, in, in uh, Genesis 1, 20, 27, it says, he made the male and the female in his image. Mm -hmm. So we, at least I can draw the conclusion that if that's so, in order for her to have life, just like Adam had life, she had to have the, have the spirit breathed into her as well. But, you know, I, I was wondering, too, it, was it a situation where if uh, Yehoah, the f fathers, both father and mother, both of them combined, and originally they made man as one, and then he went in and took a, the uh, rib out to separate them. I wonder, was the spirit already in Adam of the two, but once he separated them, he took the one spirit for Eve and the other was in Adam? Uh, it was only one spirit. So where, oh, where did the second spirit come from? Oh no. Well, I mean, you know, cause, no. uh, I think before in a previous podcast, you have said that Adam and Eve, Adam, not Adam, but Yahuwah has both, uh, masculine and feminine. Oh yeah. Feminine. Oh yeah. I see where you're coming. Yeah. Oh, you, you're right. Uh, he had masculine and feminine, um, uh, 
uh, and the androgynous nature uh, of, of Elohim, mm -hmm. and we said that his dominant nature would be the masculine, but even though he had masculine and feminine, but even with the masculine and feminine, uh, he still only had one spirit. Okay. So when he, so when he put that spirit into uh, Adam, he also put it into Eve. Now we can also make somewhat of a parallel, but not totally, by looking at when Eve had a, a baby, mm -hmm. then that baby's when it comes out, then they still had to hit the baby so the baby can, you know, get the life giving power within the baby to have life. So if you took, took the baby from uh, Eve and it had to have life, we can say also when he took extracted the rib from Adam, she also had to have life, but they all came from this one and the self same spirit. Mm. He breathed into her and just like when they had their first son, Cain, mm -hmm. then the breath went, it was the same breath going into Cain to make him have life. So now let me, this question too is, does Satan has a spirit or no? Well, we want to deal with that next week because I'm, okay. I'm going to be cover, covering here next week. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll be dealing with his spirit next week. So but he does, yeah, Satan has a spirit, but okay. we want to cover that within the course of the scope of what, I, what, I'm, what I'm teaching. Okay. Because, well, I'll probably have to save it for next week. I'll write it down. But I'm just wondering if uh, we originally, we had the spirit of Yah in us mm -hmm. when we mm -hmm. first take our breath as a baby. But mm -hmm. at some point in time, depending on what path we choose, we, you know, if we end up leaving Yah's spirit and taking on Satan's spirit at some point. Uh, and we take on Satan's spirit at some mm -hmm. point. And yeah, if we're like basically it, following mm -hmm. Satan and doing what he wants us to do, as opposed to what Yah wants us to do, especially if we're not keeping the Torah and the covenant. Uh, well, well, basically, uh, whether we keep this Torah or the covenant, uh, we we still have the have. Uh, see, Satan had. I mean, Adam and Eve have original sin, and that that is passed down to us. So, mm -hmm. in our nature, it's good and evil. Okay. Even if we keep the Torah, we still got good and evil good. in us. Okay. All right. And so, the good is going to respond to Elohim's spirit, and the evil is going to respond to Satan's spirit. Okay. So, so it, it, it's, it's not at a point that all of a sudden that you decide to keep the Torah and all that. Mm -hmm. That is good. But re remember that the spirit of evil is still there. Okay. And this is why I was pointing out in my lecture that it's a war between the, the law of the spirit and the law of the flesh. Mm. See, Satan works with the flesh. Elohim's work with the spirit. And they are warring with us. And as we yield to his spirit, then we can condemn, as Elohim did, we can condemn sin in the flesh and let the spirit take over. But if we so follow Satan, then what's going to happen is the spirit of Satan is going to take over the spirit of Elohim. Mm -hmm. Wow. So uh, I encourage you to tune in next week as we go into deeper about uh, the devil, Satan's spirit. Up next 
is Let's Talk About That. Welcome to our next segment, and let's talk about that. And this week, I want to talk about Shabbat. And if you don't know what Shabbat is, the Hebrew name of the Sabbath. You know, uh, if you're a Sunday goer, you know that you generally would go to church on Sunday. And sometimes there's a debate, which one is the right one? Well, we kind of want to talk about that today. So if you still have your Bibles with you, if you could turn with me with our first scriptures in Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 2 and 3. Again, that is Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. And it reads, And on the seventh day Elohim ended his work which he made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And Elohim blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which Elohim created and made. Now, if you can turn with me to Exodus, the book of Exodus, Shemoth, Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to be looking at verse 8 through 11. And if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, you should know this pretty much by heart because we say this just about every service, you know. And again, that's Exodus chapter 20, verse, verses 8 through 11. And it states, remember this day of the Shabbat to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Shabbat of Yahuwah Eloheka. In it you shall not do any work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger, that is within your gates. For in six days Yahuwah made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, wherefore Yahuwah blessed the day of Shabbat and hallowed it. Hallowed it, meaning making it holy. Now, according to the Sefer Bible, when they break down Shabbat, they say it's an intermission, specifically Shabbat, the seventh day of the week, the appointed times in the Feast of Yahuwah, hence the High Shabbat, the High Sabbath. So, if Yah set the stage for us to keep Shabbat on the seventh day, how did we get to Sunday? A lot of Sunday worshipers say Sunday is the holy day. So, according to the book, a source book for ancient church history by Joseph Cullen Eyre, he states that on March 7th, 321, how uh, Roman Emperor Constantine issued a civil decree making Sunday a day of rest from labor, stating, all judges and city people and craftsmen shall rest upon the vulnerable day of the sun. So, if he re this is Constantine in 321 changing the day. And we all already know that the Roman Empire is where the Catholic Church sprout up. And it also states that country people, however, may freely attend to the cultivation of the fields 
because it frequently happens that no other days are better adapting adapted for planting the grain and furrows or vines in the trenches. So it was okay for the countrymen to still work on Sunday, but for all government people, Constantine said. So we want to begin uh, the, the dialogue. One of the response that, that people quote when in their defense of worshiping on Sunday is Colossians 2, 16 and 17. And uh, we can go there and read that. That's Colossians chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 16 and 17. And it reads, Let, n- let no man therefore judge in meat or in drink or in respect of a feast day or of the new moon or of the Shabbats, which are a shadow of things to come for the body of Mashiach. So I want to know that is, if, is this something, do they have an argument with this verse and not keeping Shabbat on the seventh day, as opposed to the first day on a Sunday? Uh, well, this just this text is not really addressing mm-hmm. uh, what day any any Shabbat is on. Uh, what Paul is addressing here is not when the day is. Mm-hmm. He is just simply addressing the fact that he said, "Let no man judge you in meat or in drink or in respect to." In my Bible, it says holy days or new moon or Sabbath days. Okay, so now when you look at the text, he is saying, don't let nobody judge you on that. Now, I've heard arguments that say that, see, it says he's done away with the Sabbath because in verse 17, it says these are shadows of things that he's done away with. They are shadows. Mm -hmm. But see, uh, there's not really the proper understanding of this text. They, They may use it to say that it's, it's a shallow and it's been done away with, but you have at least two questions here. Mm-hmm. You have two questions. The first question is in verse 16. It says, when it comes to drink offering, meat offering, and holy days, new moons, and Sabbath, mm-hmm. uh, Paul is plainly saying to the people in Colossians, uh, the Col- in Colossae, that you're not to judge people who have accepted the faith of Yeshua. You're mm-hmm. not to judge them. Mm-hmm. And by the mere fact that he's telling you not to judge him, he said, because they are keeping these particular days and and they are still uh, having different meats along with their particular offerings. He said, don't judge them. He mm-hmm. said, you're not to judge them. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he's telling not to judge them. This is the very text that people use to judge people who are keeping the feast days. And Paul said, let no man judge you. Yeah. But, but yet they they are judging people who keep the festival days, the new moons. Wow. Well, how can you judge? He said, don't, don't do that. Yeah. But then the next question that we have is in, in verse 17. He mm-hmm. said, which are a shadow of things to come. Mm-hmm. Okay. So people say if it's a shadow, then uh, it's going to go away. But, but listen to what the text is saying. 
It said, which are a shadow. It didn't say shadows with an S. Mm. It mm. says shadow, which is one. Mm. Okay. Now, why is it one shadow? Well, in the same 17th verse, it's telling you, it said, but the body is of the Messiah. In other words, Messiah is one person, so he has one shadow. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, now the key to this particular verse, it is simply saying, which are shadows of things to come. So they say it's been done away, but the Bible is not saying it was done away. The Bible is simply saying it's a shadow of things to come. So mm-hmm. if something is coming, it hasn't been done away with. Wow. So when you look at keeping the Sabbath and, and the new moons and the holy days, and, and, and when it talks about the meat and the drink offerings that went along with celebrating these days, it is saying that they are shadows to lead us to the Messiah, mm. and the Messiah is yet to come. So if the Messiah has not come yet, then the shadows is not totally fulfilled. It says, it didn't say which are a shadow of things gone. Mm-hmm. It said a shadow of things to come. And if something is coming and it hadn't got here, how are you going to do away with it? Oh, wow. True. So the next question is that was the Shabbat specifically given to Israel and no other nations? So saying well, that, mm-hmm, right. well, I'll let you go ahead. Good. No, you go ahead. finish your question. I kind of cut you off. And, and, and so basically saying that other nations don't even have to abide by the, the seventh day rule. Okay. Um, well, let, let's look at the Sabbath from its beginning, okay? Mm-hmm. What, Israel weren't even around when, when, when the Sabbath was given. Mm-hmm. All, all you had was Adam and Eve, and then they had children, and it was passed down to him. That's, that's when it got started. Now, Israel didn't come into existence until later on, Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look in Genesis, then when when uh, let us turn to Genesis. Uh, I believe it's chapter fourteen. Genesis chapter fourteen. <clears throat> okay. Now here here we see uh, uh, in in Genesis chapter fourteen that uh, Abraham. When he was sojourning on his sojourn, mm-hmm. that we are told, let me see, in verse, let me see here. Let us look at verse number 18, Genesis 14, 18. It said, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was a priest of the Most High Elohim. Okay, now verse 19 is what we kind of want to zero in. It has said, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the most high Elohim, possessor of heaven and earth. Mm -hmm. Okay, now here's here's what you want to see Abraham existed before the Israelites, okay? Mm -hmm. And he says that this man, Abraham, went and he dealt with Melchizedek. Mm -hmm. And when he dealt with Melchizedek, he said, Melchizedek blessed Abram of the Most High Elohim, El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. Now, 
what is the only true Elohim of heaven and earth? That's found in the fourth commandment that you just read in Exodus 20 mm-hmm. of heaven and earth. Mm-hmm. That's the only way that you know he was, he, he was, he was a possessor of heaven and earth because he made he- the heavens and the earth. And the Bible says that he made it in six days and he rested on the seventh day, which was the Sabbath day. So if you have Abraham dealing with a man from the most high, and he was a, of another nation than Abraham, mm-hmm. then if he was dealing with the most high, then Melchizedek or Melchizedek had to know the Sabbath, to know who was, who, who was the possessor of heaven and earth. Mm-hmm. It's right there. He had to know who, 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 who he was, and he found it out in the, in the fourth, fourth commandment, even before it was written at Sinai. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if he knew that the Sabbath was there, he was of, a, of another nation. Okay, so when Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Esau and Jacob, it was through Jacob that Israelite came into existence, who was the son of Isaac. Okay, mm-hmm. so when he became a son of Isaac, this meant that the Israelites, when they were around Mount Sinai, he gave it to the Israelites again because they had lost sight of it. But we must look at it from this standpoint. Every, every, uh, Hebrew, every Hebrew, which Abraham was, mm-hmm. is not an Israelite. But every Israelite is a Hebrew because the Bible even says in the book of Hebrews that uh, I believe it was Judah that paid their tithe through, no, I think it was the Levites. No, the Levites, before they came into existence, they paid their tithe through Abraham. So when Abraham paid a tenth to Melchizedek, uh-huh. then uh, Levi, who was not yet born, who was the seed, was paying tithe in Abraham. So what is that saying? It is saying that other nations, if they keep the Sabbath, they'll be blessed. And if other nations don't keep it, they, they won't be blessed in, in, in that entity. But the fact is, is that when Abraham had Isaac and Isaac had Jacob and Jacob had the 12 and he, and they called him Jacob changed his name to Israel. Then he gave it to Israel. So today as Israel go out among the world and give the covenant to other nations, if other nations accept it, then they would be blessed by it. If the other nations do not accept it, they won't be blessed by it. But he gave the Sabbath to the world, not just to his people, but his peoples are the ones who are to carry it to the world. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things I thought of, too, was that Israel was supposed to be the standard bearer for the whole world to see, to be the example and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Not that it was specifically for them, but it's for the whole world, but with being example to show how everything is done. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it was a thing, you know, because... Just how it's stated in Genesis when he rested, there was no Israel, like you said, at that time. And then even how you brought out about Melchizedek, who is he's not from the line of Abraham at all. Now, we know we're not supposed to uh, work on Shabbat. Now, does that mean uh, physical labor, getting paid labor or and I know we in Exodus, when the uh, children of Israel was coming out of Egypt, he told forbid them to even cook or prepare anything on Sabbath. You can't draw water. What 
is it just physical work are we for the rest from or just everything and basically take that time and dwell on on Yah and his word? Well, uh, I think in the book of Hebrews in the fourth chapter, you know, it, it's it kind of speaks about not only uh, uh, physical labor, because I don't think Elohim was tired when he uh, finished the creation in six days. Mm-hmm. He was, he's Elohim, you know, he's, he, he has strength and abilities. His rest was not just totally physical, but it was sort of like a spiritual rest. Like, mm-hmm. you know, some jobs, it is not that much uh, physical labor, but it's a lot of uh, intense uh, mental uh, uh, labor and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So when he said rest, it was not only just talking about physical, but it was embracing also a rest from the chores uh, that we were engaged in. Because today, a lot of times when people are getting a lot of stress, it may be from the problems and the difficulties that they have, and not necessarily uh, doing a lot of hard work because they found out doing a lot of hard work sometimes can relieve a lot of the tension and the stress that you have, which is good. But the fact is, is that it's talking about physical labor as well as uh, mental labor. Because when it says thou should, uh, th- uh, thou should uh, not do any work on the Sabbath, he's talking about the whole household. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you have servants or people to work for you, he said they are not to work work too. And you know, on some companies, they have people working in the office and some people working in the field. They doing physical labor and others doing uh, uh, mental labor. But when he talked about survival work and bringing Egypt, uh, Israel out of Egypt mm-hmm. and not to work, he was saying that was sort of like survival labor. And when you look at survival labor, it was slavish labor, okay? And today we don't call them uh, slaves. We may call them a servant or we may call them employees. Mm -hmm. So when we get to employees, we're still dealing with slave labor. We're still dealing with uh, 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 a labor of work that the same thing that a slave would do. So when we come to that, he said, you cease all of that. And then you just zero in on me and be refreshed. And then when you go back to the same labor, then you'll refresh it even probably do it better. So let me ask this, is the Shabbat a day where you have to go and uh, congregate? And I'm not going to just say because some people don't go to a church, but well, I guess you can say go to a church or uh, um, a group and everything uh, that some people may not go to a church, they may just get together in a group. Is, is that something you have to do on Shabbat? Well, you know, it's interesting that you raise that question because a lot of, lot of people uh, say that you need to go to church. Well, first place, what is the church? It's, that's a building that they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing, they're talking about congregation of people. Now, the people are actually the ecclesia, which is the church. Mm-hmm. So it's the gathering of the people. Now, if you say on the Sabbath, the people have to gather together, that means that once they disperse, then you got some of the church over here, you got some of the church over there, and you got some over here. But when they come together on Sabbath, you're saying that they, when they come together, all of the pieces of the church or the individuals, they make up the church. They are scattered during the week, but on the Sabbath, they come together. Mm-hmm. Now, the question that we have with that is, when you read the commandment, it never said that you had to congregate on Sabbath. Now, now here's, here's, here's the interesting thing about it. If you read the Sabbath, 
And if I read it correctly, mm-hmm. only thing it's saying is that you should rest on the Sabbath. It never said that you should congregate. Yeah. Now, now, why would I bring up that? Here's why I would bring this up. Okay. Because when you let us let us turn to uh, Leviticus, uh, the twenty third chapter, Leviticus twenty three. This is why I bring that up. Now, it is it is most interesting to me. I don't know how others may see it. But in the 23rd chapter of uh, Leviticus, notice what it says. Now, it talks about the Shabbat, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, now, uh, here you read in Leviticus 23, starting with verse 1, it says, And Jehovah spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying unto them, Concerning the feast, now, these are the feasts, right? Mm-hmm. Of Jehovah, which ye shall proclaim, to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. Now, you know, a holy convocation is when people gather together, right? Yes. They, they come together. All right. Now, here, here's the point. When you read verse 3, it says, Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest and holy convocation. Okay. So it's saying here that the first feast day is the weekly Sabbath. And it hmm. should be a holy convocation. Okay. Okay. He says, "Ye shall do no work therein. It is a Sabbath of Yahuwah in all your dwellings." Okay. So he is pointing out in verse four. He said, "These are the feasts of Yahuwah, even holy convocations, which ye shall proclaim in their seasons." So he's saying the weekly Shabbat is mm-hmm. something that you should congregate uh, with. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, in ancient Israel, when they was around Sinai, I don't know if they had to go around Sinai, but everybody rested in the camp. I don't know if they went to get a sermon or something or what, or they just rested and meditated upon the things that they do, but it was a holy convocation. Mm-hmm. And then he says the feast particularly, he said, even the holy convocation as you should proclaim, and it goes on to call for Passover, First Fruits, Shavio, and uh, Day of Atonement, uh, and, and uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, all mm-hmm. of those. And those were to be hum- holy convocations where the people would come together. And when they come together, they would have a holy convocation. So uh, a lot of people used to, in the book of Hebrews, when it says, we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as some, uh, as some do. And a lot of people apply this to prayer meeting and different things. Mm-hmm. But actually... When it says we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, it was not really talking about prayer meeting and all that. It was talking about the feast days. So that's what. So you said it's talking about the feast days. Mm -hmm. So technically, people who are keeping the Sabbath are keeping a feast day. So Mm -hmm. I just wonder why certain religions have an issue with feast day, the rest of the feast days, tabernacle, Passover, but they can keep the mm-hmm. Sabbath. Yeah, well, see, the Sabbath is the first feast they gave. That was the mm-hmm. weekly feast, and then he gave the annual feast, which was once that you kept once a year. Okay, so a lot of people say, well, the, uh, the, uh, the Sabbath feast is found in the, uh, the, the Sabbath feast is found in Ten Commandments, but the other feasts aren't, and they were nailed to the cross. That's that's one of the polemics that they give is mm-hmm. the reason why they don't keep the feast days 
because it's not in Ten Commandments. And then when you come back and say, well, do, does it have to be in the Ten Commandments to keep it? And mm -hmm. they say, yeah. Well, then you ask them, well, what about your health laws? And what about the exactly. tithe and offering? All of That's that is not was, there. Only yeah. thing the Bible says is thou should not steal. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you don't give your tithe and offering, they're stealing. But since it's not in the Ten Commandments, you say you don't do it. So if a person don't pay their tithe and offerings, uh, you look down upon them. And but uh, when it comes to the Sabbath or the feast days, and they don't keep them, you say it's nailed to the cross. So if that's nailed to the cross, it's not health laws and and and, and the uh, and the and the feast days, as you said, they have nailed to the cross, then do we not nail tithe and offering to the cross as well? Yeah. yeah I, I would think you would. Yeah, I you can't pick and choose. Is If you say it's been nailed to the cross, then it's nailed to the cross. Now, now one of the, one of the things about uh, when people say it's been nailed to the cross, one of the things that they have to look at mm -hmm. is, is especially in the Millerite movement. When you study the Millerite movement, you know, which they were not Adventists, but it moved into Adventists, and then they have what they call the Seventh-Month Movement, and then uh, churches began to develop from that. You even have the Jehovah Witness churches came out of uh, a, lot of, a lot of the Great Awakening, not only the Adventist church, mm -hmm. you have Christian Science and a lot of other churches that came up out of the Great Awakening that Miller started. So the question that you have to ask yourself is that when you read about the Advent movement, it talks about the seven-month movement, and a lot of people are not aware of the seven-month movement, but is it is, is in the literature of the Advent movement is that they said the seventh month, mm -hmm. and they call them the seventh-month movement. Now, the seventh month is when you had the, uh, the blowing of the trumpets, which was on the first day of the seventh month, mm -hmm. and 10 days after that, you had the Day of Atonement, and after that, on the 15th, you started your uh, Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the point that I want to emphasize is that when you look at Revelation, the, uh, the 14th chapter, when it talks about what we call the three angels' messages, it, 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 it talks about the fact that when we uh, hear the three angels' message, fear, well, let's turn to Revelation 14. Revelation. And we're going to point out something here. So here in Revelation 14, I believe it's 7, okay, it says... Uh, and I heard a loud voice, uh, and, that, and I heard a loud voice in verse 7. Uh, he says, Sand with a loud voice, fear Elohim and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the, and the, and the sea and the fountains of waters. Okay, now, uh, when you look at that first angel's message, okay, it points out in this particular verse, it says, in verse 7, fear Elohim and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment come. Mm -hmm. Now, in the Advent movement, they say that the judgment hours actually occurred on the Day of Atonement in which the Bible was. And this is why they call them the seventh month movement because they were actually keeping the feast days that came in the seventh month. But mm -hmm. the point that is, is that they, Miller was preaching that they were going to have a cleansing of the sanctuary. And he thought the sanctuary was the earth, but he found out that Elohim actually had a sanctuary in heaven. And then the one that Moses and Solomon made on earth, they were destroyed. So if you're going to have a judgment that takes place in the sanctuary, it couldn't have been on the earth. It had to be in the heaven. Mm -hmm. So now the point being is, is that they equated 
the day of judgment with the day of atonement. So if the day of atonement was nailed to the cross when Christ died, how can 2,300 years later, how can you then turn around and say it was nailed to the cross and yet then the history of your church teaches that you lifted up the day of atonement and saying that he started the, uh, uh, he started the judgment in heaven in 1844. Mm. And you said it was nailed to the cross. So how did you get an 1844 for the judgment? When, when all of the feast days nailed to the cross, even the day of atonement, which brings in the judgment, which is talks about here in the seventh verse of the 14th chapter. And then we talk about the heavens and the earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Now, how do we know anything about the sea and the fountains of waters? Because that is in Exodus, the 20th chapters. Mm. It says the same language. Mm. So you got two things. You got two feast days read here in the seventh verse. You got the day of atonement and you got the Sabbath read in the seventh verse. Wow. wow. So how can you accept one and don't accept the other? Pastor, can you take us to the throne as we get ready to close out this podcast yeah. for this week? Yeah, okay, then. Father and Father, as we have studied the betrothal of Elohim, how he is connected with marriage, and as we have discussed the Sabbath and the Shabbat, so Heavenly Father, that you have given annual as well as weekly that your children should follow. And when we follow that, we are following the, the calendar of heaven. And as we follow the calendar of heaven, O Heavenly Father, we can arrive at the events and the things, Lord, that you would help us to be able to cope with. For you've given us a covering, O oh, Heavenly Father, in this world, that if we keep your festivals, O oh, Heavenly Father, you protect us, you guard us. And as we guard the Torah and as we guard the things that you have given, then you will guard us because we treasure your things and you will treasure us. So now, Father, as we go through the Sabbath, give us a refresh and revitalize us, renew us, refresh our spirits, renew our minds, and revitalize our bodies so that when we have another week, we'll be refreshed enough to be able to start anew and to be able to have the things and the strength and the energy to be able to accomplish that which you would have us to. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us this week. We thank you that you brought us through. Sometimes we were up and sometimes we was down. Sometimes we were in darkness, sometimes we were in light, sometimes we were ignorant, and sometimes we were wise. But through it all, you brought us through, and we just want to say hallelujah and give praise to your name. Bless each one who listened to the podcast, that the power of the Holy Spirit may penetrate their minds with truth, that they may cleave to you, O Heavenly Father. And as they cleave to you, they can feel your presence, and you can feel their presence. And as they are desirous of walking in the way that you would have them to walk, that you would give them the strength and the ability to do it. And as they obey, they can come back to the covenant promise through the death of your son on the cross, to be able to atone for them, to give them new life. And as they have the new life, they could continue with the seed of Elohim in them to come back the seed of the Satan that is opposing them, that they may be victors in the end, that one day you can release the curse of Satan and give them that eternal existence with thee, world without end. So bless, keep, guide, direct each of your children. And when you do come, may we meet you in peace is our prayer in the name of Yeshua, the Messiah. And for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Hallelujah. Amen. That is our podcast for this week. I'm Boyce Washington. 
And on the other side of me is Pastor Richard Washington, and we are the Science of the Covenant. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. May Yahuwah bless and keep you. Until next week, Shalom.